Welcome back to the Book and Film Globe podcast, the audio home companion of www.bookandfilmglobe.com, where we cover books, movies, television, streaming media, and much, much more. Our intrepid editor and host, Neil Pollock, is away this week. Something to do with alien autopsies in New Mexico, not exactly sure. But doing my best to stand in for him, my name is Scott Gold, a Book and Film Globe contributor who's written on the site about everything from witchers, vampires, and moon nights to whether or not Baby Yoda is a genocidal monster. We have a great show for you this week, my friends. We'll talk with Daniel Cohen about the interesting new tournament in the Jeopardy sphere known as Jeopardy Masters. And Dan Friedman will be joining us later to discuss Silo, Apple TV Plus's new post-apocalyptic sci-fi drama adapted from the best-selling series of novels by Hugh Howey. But first, we are going to talk about everyone's favorite nitro-boosting, car-racing, things-exploding family series, The Fast and the Furious. Fast X is in theaters now, and I'm going to talk all about it with contributor John Paul Gwynn right after this musical interlude. Mercury is rising outside, and with it comes the reliable return to theaters of big tentpole action extravaganzas, the latest of which features Vin Diesel and family in Fast X, the tenth and penultimate of the Fast and Furious series. How this one can possibly top the previous installment's decision to turn a Pontiac Fiero into a spaceship in order to send Ludacris crashing into a satellite is beyond me. And yes, that happened. But fortunately, we have Book and Phil Globe contributor and Fast and Furious expert Jean-Paul Gwynn to tell us if and how Fast X measures up to its predecessors. His piece is on the site right now, and I'm happy to have him here. Jean-Paul, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. So, uh, you know, I go and I see these movies, and it's funny, when I went to host this uh, podcast, I wanted to bone up on the series, and I thought, you know, I don't you know, I don't think I've seen all of these movies or at least most of them. And then I started kind of digging back into it and I realized I'd seen most of these movies. I'd just forgotten about them. And I think that kind of uh, is a testament to the nature of these, of these fast movies that, you know, they're big and they're loud and they're fun, but uh, you know, they kind of, uh, they slipped in my memory a little bit, but I enjoy them while they happen. So if you wouldn't mind, just, would you mind catching us up a little bit on the series and where we are and what's going on? Oh, catching up on the series. Oh my God. <laughs> Do we there need to are, know anything going into this movie? I, I think if you walked into this movie without ever having seen one of the other movies or reading up on them, you'd be a little bit lost. But at the same time, you would also kind of have an idea of what's going on during the entire thing. Fast X is basically a revenge story. And they set that up very well in the preamble uh, of the film, the pre-credits sequence, where they go back to Fast Five to a drug lord dying at the ultimate chase at the end of Fast Five, and then they retcon in a son who is played by Jason Momoa, and Jason Momoa wants to bring down uh, Hellfire on Vin Diesel and anybody, they say this in the movie, anybody who's ever helped Vin Diesel or Dom Toretto and his family ever, everybody. So I'm assuming Milkman or Fair Game. Uh, so he's like the Kaiser boy. Soze of the fast villains, right? Well, he's a lot more flamboyant. <laughs> uh, there's a lot that goes on. I mean, and there's a lot of callbacks in this to not only the main movies, but there's a couple of callbacks to 
short films that weren't released as full-length feature films in the series, like both Los Bandoleros gets referred to at one wow, point. Wow, so there's some deep cuts here. Yeah, there's a lot of Easter eggs here. They bring back, you know, props from other movies. I mean, it's there's a lot. Um, right now, it's just, it's turned into fan service. The, uh, but at the same time, you can sit there and watch it. It's like going to a Transformers movie. There's a lot of stuff in that universe as well, but you don't know need to know what it is. If you like big robots beating up on each other, you're probably going to have a good time. Right. You know, like I, I deep dive into Star Wars a lot for, uh, for the site. And when I talk with Neil, he's like, I don't know what's going on, but, uh, you know, I like lightsabers. So, you know, as, I think it's very similar to when you have a franchise this big and long running, because this is the 10th in the series. And that's not counting all, you know, the short films you mentioned. What's it? Yeah, we'd already be there if Roman wasn't driving four knots on wheels. You see me shining, baby? We're locked inside! That's a trap. That's a bomb! Hey, dorks, what are we blowing up? What? The Vatican. Wow. You guys are going to hell. So there's been a lot going on, and yet at the same time, every entry seems to have those same elements that keep the fans coming back for more. Yeah, the elements, um, all the elements are there. Uh, you have at least one drag race and at least one person hitting the nitrous to go fast, fast in their car a little bit too early uh, and a knowing you know, nod from, from Vin Diesel. Uh, you have... Uh, Exotic locations, lots of globe trotting, and lots and lots and lots of stuff blowing up, and lots of defying the laws of physics, especially gravity. Uh, they they do they do good. One of the things that they do really well is they do uh, really great, if not entirely believable, chase set pieces. It's not a, a lot of the chases aren't gritty chases like. Uh, a grandfather. French, like it's not the French in, connection. It's not the know? French connection. It's not bullet. Uh, it's, it's more, it's more like something that you would see in the Marvel universe at this point. Right. I mean, this is essentially a Saturday morning, a live action Saturday morning cartoon. It is a cartoon. Yes, it is. And to that end, you can't have, you know, heroes without having villains. And we got Jason Momoa in this one, as you mentioned, and uh, everything I've gathered so far, people are really raving about his performance as the baddie in this one. What do you uh, what do you think about that? I think I went and saw the movie on opening night, and people loved it. Um, they loved him anytime he was on screen. Uh, it's, I've seen a lot of comparisons to the Joker, and that's fair. Uh, to me, it seems a lot like Noho Hank from Barry combined with his own Aquaman performance, uh, which is strange but yeah it's 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 fun he's clearly having a really good time and everything kind of lightens up a little bit when he's on screen even though he's trying to kill all the good guys i think that's actually something that's a lot more difficult to accomplish than just being a straight up you know it's just a straight up bad evil guy like having fun chewing the scenery giving some personality i think that makes a memorable character it's more interesting for sure uh it's I think the 
I think that maybe the thought that goes through people's heads now because of how this series has come is like how soon until he becomes one of the one of Dom's team, which I don't think is actually going to happen here. But you don't know because they have so many people that they've kind of converted to uh, Toretto-ism, I guess, over the course of the series. Uh, right, he's work. like, uh, Dom is like a charismatic cult leader at this point, because like every bad guy they face at some point ends up being one of their allies, you know, to ultimately protect family, right? Yeah, even even reluctant allies, but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of side switching in here. Um, the protagonists become antagonists at certain points. The antagonists become protagonists, and that seems to be the more uh, the more common route that characters take in, the, in this film series. It's and, very soap opera-ish. And I think that's one of the reasons that I dig these movies sometimes. And I think a lot, you know, the, the fan base that really, really loves it. I think that's one of the things that they really like. There was a point about, I don't know if it was in four or five, but there was a point in one of those two movies where it kind of moved over to what it is now to where it is, uh, very, very over the top, very soap opera ish, and uh, and is comfortable with that. Yeah, I think it also has a lot in common with like professional wrestling narratives. You know, very similar in that you know big you know big flamboyant narratives like big juicy you know twists and turns and people turning on each other and you know I think that's part of the fun. And speaking of which, you know. There are a lot of professional wrestlers in the movies. We have John Cena. We also have some stars like Charlize Theron and Brie Larson. You know, some some big heavyweight, you know, dramatic talent, as well as, uh, of course, you know, Saint Rita Moreno. I think at this point, if somebody, if I saw an article dropping the cast for the next movie, I wouldn't be surprised by anybody. If they said Jimmy Carter said it, I'd be like, well, of course he is. Uh, <laughs> it, it, nothing would surprise me in these movies anymore. Like Helen Mirren is a fixture at this point, and she's been in, in a few of them. Uh, and yeah, anybody, anybody could drop in, I think, at, at For any Fast time. 11, Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> straight out of retirement. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> not, not even a little bit. I mean, for these, you know, big popcorn flicks, they really do attract a lot of big name talent. It's pretty amazing. I think it looks like they're having a blast and they get to travel. Uh, they're, they're almost yeah. always shot on location. So they're hanging out in Rio or uh, Rome or some or somewhere like that. Azerbaijan, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, it looks like <laughs> it looks like it would be a blast to go and, and hang out with with. Michelle Rodriguez and Vin Diesel for a couple of days. It looks like it would be fun. Everybody looks right. like they're having a great time. And it's not like there's pressure to win an Oscar in one of these roles. Like you can clearly go in and just have a great time with it. Right. Exactly. It's, 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 it's fun. It is popcorn entertainment. So this uh, I'm told is the, uh, the first part of a two part finale of the series. So we're led to believe. So do you think this movie sets us up well to conclude the fast series? I think that the fast series is far from concluded. I think that the main fast series, the plan was they were going to do fast X and one more. And very recently Vin Diesel has been dropping hints that it might break off into a third 
movie, like a like a closing trilogy. And they've already also talked about spinning off kind of uh, the women of the Fast and Furious type of series. They've already spun off Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, and I, I don't know if another one of those is coming, but it did well, so I don't see why it wouldn't. Um, so I, yeah. I don't think I don't think I don't think they're going to I don't think they're just going to close it out and it's going to be right. Gone. As long as these movies are making money, I think they're going to continue to make them. And yeah. if we wind up seeing Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious, the nursing home edition, like racing nitrous powered rocket wheelchairs down the halls of, uh, you know, Shady Oaks or whatever it is, uh, that would not surprise me in the least. And honestly, I'd, I'd watch that. I think what they'll I, I, my prediction is that they'll. A lot of the main, a lot of the main cast will take a little bit of a step back, uh, like Vin Diesel, who is starting to when he shows up for the race and everybody gets excited, it is starting to be a little bit like, it, it does look like somebody's dad showing up there. Um, so I think that they'll kind of take a step back and kind of hand it over to a younger generation of people who are you know better at jumping out of cars across two bridges into other cars, you know, because they're young and spry, and it's the kind of series that that calls for that um pretty well it's it's uh it's about drag racing that's a young that's a young people's game i think yeah yeah i mean i I don't want to you know i don't necessarily want to see you know somebody's great grandfather drag racing i mean sometimes i do but you know you want the young hotness and i think that's a lot of what the audience is is counting on and what they're there for it's a it's a it's a really vivid form of escapism and honestly like when i watch these movies i tend to have a good time often against my better judgment as a movie and television critic so you know i'm actually looking forward to getting out to the theaters to uh to take a load off and you know put the pressure release valve on my brain and just watch stuff blow up well if you're doing it and you're doing it right friends of mine were outside the theater the other night with uh tailgating with their cars open, coolers of Corona, and uh, tank tops on with necklaces and all. And they went in and had a complete blast. And I think that's probably the best way to take it in. It's a lot of hooting and hollering whenever you really enjoy something. And even they didn't even mind at the Alamo Draft House where you're supposed to kind of shut up. Wow, that is... Uh... That is surprising to me, but also it sounds like a really great time. And you know what? In a post-COVID world where few, fewer and fewer people are actually going to the movie theaters and experiencing these things communally and collectively, I'm all for it. So you know what? I say uh, let's get our let's uh, hit that nitrous button and uh, and get the rockets going and uh, have a great time. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a plan. There's plenty of road out there left. Well, I'm glad to hear it. John Paul, thanks so much for being here. Again, John Paul's uh, review of Fast 10 is up on the site now. Always great to have you here, my man. Thanks very much, Scott. some graves. You're not to be trusted. Hey, you ain't on my Christmas list either. The beloved game show Jeopardy has had not a few shakeups, scandals, and changes since the sad passing of longtime host Alex Trebek in 2020. The most recent addition to the show's canon is a new championship called Jeopardy Masters, which not only features six of the most formidable contestants in the game's recent history, but also a fair number of new format and rules changes. Does it work? Here to discuss Jeopardy Masters is Book and Film Globe contributor Daniel Cohen. Daniel, great to have you here. Hi, Scott. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Uh, I am very much enjoying this strange new addition to the Jeopardy canon. Um, it's definitely, uh, you know, not your, your grandma's Jeopardy. Um, uh, can you explain just for a second what, uh, you know, what makes this version of Jeopardy a little bit different and uh, uh, a little bit special? Sure. So essentially what this, what this format is, is they, they brought back five of the contestants from the most recent Tournament of Champions and added the infamous James Holtzauer, who was on three or four years ago uh, before the pandemic, but is now a uh, chaser on the chase, also produced by Sony, um, and is kind of generally regarded as, you know, one of the top three contestants ever on Jeopardy. Um, so they're playing, they played a round-robin format in the quarterfinals, the six of them, the top four made the semifinals, which are about to begin and then there's a single game final between the three of the four who finished the best in that round robin. Um, all of which would have been great to know uh, uh, before the day the tournament started, which is when all of these rules were publicly announced, really, for the first time. Um, which is, yeah, you know, kind of issue number one, that it was unclear exactly what this was going to entail until it started. And, and even then, you know, there was some confusion and I think still is some confusion about how exactly everything's supposed to work. Uh, that's about the long and short of it. I mean, the, the actual Jeopardy game itself has been really good, right? Like the content has been significantly more difficult than a typical tournament of champions even. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm really glad I'm not the only one to notice this. It seems like a, you know, a little bit, a step up in difficulty from, uh, from, you know, your, you know, your daily Jeopardy broadcast. Going from watching the 7.30 syndicated, which is when it's on in my market, to the 8 o'clock Masters is a huge jump, both in terms of like difficulty and also gameplay like level. The, the contestants are just better at that level. And um, I find that is something that I really enjoy about Jeopardy! When you watch these game show masters or these Jeopardy! masters, really, you know, at the peak of their prowess and, you know, getting some of these obscure trivia questions that I'm like, where did they pull that from? And, you know, I'm a fairly decent guy at trivia, but they are really, really good. Yeah, I mean, even by the standards of the people that, that I, I play against regularly, who I would rank as among the best in the world, like, they're, they're pulling things that are really difficult pulls. And a lot of that comes, you know, from just study and manual repetition. All these people who use flashcards, all these people devoted, you know, probably the equivalent of a full-time job to getting ready for this. Uh, and it shows. I mean, that, that level of preparation is evident in every episode. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I'm really enjoying the gameplay. One thing that I found a little bit different um, that's uh, a little bit more lighthearted and fun in Jeopardy! Masters is the fact that, you know, we know who these people are, and it gives them a little bit of leeway, and I think they might be encouraged a bit by, by the production team to engage in some, uh, some, some very lighthearted ribbing and trash talk, which we don't often see on the syndicated show. It is a very staged show, for sure. Um, I think that's intentional. I think if you read the interviews that Michael Davis, who's the executive producer, has done uh, in the press in the last week or so, he's made it really obvious that he would like this to be a recurring thing and, and have this be sort of an official Jeopardy postseason, which... You could argue that a Jeopardy postseason already exists in the Tournament of Champions, but I, I, I think his broader point is that we have these personalities. They're on the show for a, a length of time, and maybe the tournament, 
and then we never see them again. What if instead we had them be sort of recurring personalities? We we developed people over the, the course of their trivia careers. You know, there's there's LeBron James might have had a bad game last night, but it didn't mean that he never played basketball again. You know, it's, right, it's, right. There's 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 something to be said for a very strong player that uh, you know just just has a bad day in jeopardy. Believe me, it's happened um, many times. And, and some of these folks as well, like their performance in the Masters tournament shouldn't be indicative of their, you know, relative strength overall to each other. They're playing hard trivia sets. They're playing against the best in the world. It's ultimately a buzzer race more than anything else at this level. Um, and, you know, yeah, they don't I, get I, a lot I, wrong. Uh, they don't get a lot wrong. And, and if you look at the stats, which is another kind of innovation of Davis's where they post very detailed box scores, almost like a sabermetric approach to baseball on their website. You can see how many times each contestant tries to ring in for a given question and how, how often they get it correct, right? Like they, they can track all that in the studio. And, and yeah, you see that the, the actual level of, of knowledge is quite high, no matter who gets in first. It does make it really, really satisfying, though, when none of them gets it and you're sitting at home being like, come on, guys, I knew this. So that's the best feeling in the world, right? Like that's the genius of Jeopardy is that you can play along. Um, which brings me to a point that I made in the article, which I think is one of the big negative things about this, which is showing the audience daily double locations before the round starts. Yeah, that's a big deal. Um, Davis's rationale for doing this is that the producers have a call sheet, uh, you know, backstage that they can track these things on and that they find it very exciting to see some near misses when, when they know the locations of, of, of the questions. My opinion as somebody who's watched Jeopardy for, you know, the better part of my life is that this really takes away from some of the suspense that's inherent in, in enjoying the show. I mean, you're right in saying that, like, if there's a, what they call a triple stumper, everybody gets the question wrong. And you know it at home and you're yelling it from your couch. Like, that's, that's ultimately the genius, right? That's the allure of Jeopardy. But I feel like the anticipation of the Daily Double coming and sort of lately especially seeing people hunt around for it um, – heightens the suspense as well. So it seems unusual to me that they would want to take that away from the majority of the viewers. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I thought it was a strange choice because, I mean, having the audience not know where the double jeopardy is and then have it pop up, it's a really, it felt, it feel, always felt to me like a bingo moment, you know, like when you exactly. get that yeah. line of bingo cards and it's like, oh, there it is, bingo, and you get to jump up and it's very exciting. Uh, so, and also I feel like in order for it to really pay off, you would have to memorize exactly where those spots were and remember where they were while at the same time playing at home. And, you know, the game is paced so quickly that I find myself rapidly forgetting where they were, but vaguely knowing. Uh, and it's just, you're correct in, in I agree that it, it's not quite as satisfying. That's a good point. And I hadn't really thought about it like that. Um, I haven't been, needless to say, I haven't been a, uh, uh, partaking in the offer of the Daily Doubles, which, which leads me to have to like close my eyes and turn away during that part of the show. Yeah, that's annoying, really, right? It's a strange feeling. Like yeah. I, it, it's, it breaks up the flow of the show in a way that's really un unsettling to me. Um, I, I get it, right? Like I, I understand the argument they're making, and I'm sure that there are people that appreciate it and enjoy it. I, I don't think that's true of the majority of the Jeopardy! audience, if I had to guess, which tends to be a, an older, more conservative audience. You know, they, 
Jeopardy has been the same thing since 1984, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the Trebek era and onwards. And and really, the, like the the presentation has never changed. The dollar values have doubled. The five game limit has been uh, uh, taken away, which all of which are great, like quality of life changes. But Jeopardy's always been Jeopardy, and and you know, to monkey with the format a little bit, I think once in a while is okay, right? You can do a greatest of all time tournament. You can do an ultimate tournament of champions. They've done those in the past. They've been really excellent experiences. The second chance tournament is another great innovation that I'll give Davis credit for. Yeah, I think right? that's great. In the era of the super champion, which we, we didn't expect was going to happen right away after Trebek passed, but it did. Uh, and all of a sudden you had these people winning 20, 30, 40 games. Um, you know, there were very talented people that were just unlucky enough to draw them that day and deserve to come back. And those, and those stats, those analytics show you who those people are, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. if somebody has a, a great game on Jeopardy that would have won in any other circumstance, so they lose to Amy Schneider, yeah. there's no shame in that. Right. Bring I those, mean, bring those rem- people back. For I sure. remember reading someone, uh, you know, a contestant talking about, you know, what it was like to face off against Amy Schneider and her, I believe they, call, they called it her campaign of carnage. <laughs> um, I mean, if you, such if, an if, excellent you win, player. if you step in the studio, right, and you hear that there's a 39 game returning champion or something, you, you just think to yourself, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> it's it's got to be a terrible feeling. But at the same time, I think it was really, it's really a great move to have uh, so self-described uh, game show villain James Holtzauer on the show because, you know, Jeopardy isn't the kind of game that has had villains in the past, and he plays the role so perfectly, it does make for good TV. It does, and I hate to say that, because I think there's there's not a lot of logic involved in bringing him back if you're, if you're trying to create, like, an annualized recurring postseason. Bringing somebody back from several years ago who just happens to be very good... Uh, seems to obviate the idea of that in the first place. Now, now I think what they're eventually going to come towards if they repeat this is a postseason that includes some of these people who are on the show right now, uh, worthy candidates for next season's tournament of champions and so on. Uh, but historically there have been a lot of people that are, you know, are just as good as James Holtzauer, maybe not in terms of their actual jeopardy record, but, I think certainly in terms of their knowledge base and their, you know, wagering ability, who never got the chance to to do this. If you if you right. look back over time, there are there are plenty of people from you know the the five game era that would be worthy contestants if they put in the preparation and work that that these guys do. Um, you know, you could argue that those people deserve a chance as well if you're gonna if you're gonna arbitrarily extend it back to Holtzauer who. Yeah you know, is is not the all-time winning streak holder, is not even second, certainly has, the has you know, the, the, the second-place money record and uh, a strong personality, and he's already on a game show. But what exactly is the point of bringing him into this when you, you bring nobody else who wasn't in last season's TOC? Right. I think it's just pure entertainment factor, the fact that he's a known quantity that people like of to course. watch. It's, you know, it's... It's a production decision, um, and again, yeah. it makes for good TV. Is it the best for Jeopardy? Who knows? But I have to say, personally, despite some of the funky rule changes, I'm definitely enjoying the Masters tournament. Statistically, he's been the best contestant 
through the quarterfinals by a pretty wide margin. So you can't argue with his skill level, even relative to his competition. He's, he's dominating so far. Um, well, thank you so much for being here, Daniel Cohen, whose piece on Jeopardy! Masters is available right now on bookandfilmglobe.com. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. The world ravaged by a mysterious apocalypse. The survivors living in a silo of unknown origin in which the ultimate crime is to say that you want to go outside, where the air, we're told, is pure poison. There's murder, there's mystery, there's political intrigue, there's a Pez dispenser. Yes, we're talking about Silo, the new series on Apple TV Plus adapted from the breakthrough sci-fi novels by author Hugh Howey. Episode 4 recently dropped, and here to discuss the television series is Book and Film Globe contributor Dan Friedman. Dan writes often about literature and science fiction for the site, and I'm really, really happy to have him here. Dan? Hi, great to be here, Scott. So this is a really cool post-apocalyptic series. We're seeing a lot of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic narratives uh, surrounding us. I think that's no surprise, considering the fact that we just uh, have been dealing with a big pandemic. But um, this is a really interesting one, and uh, I am working my way. I'm almost finished with the first book, and I have to say, so far, I think it's a pretty successful adaptation, and I'm really enjoying it. What are your thoughts uh, just to start us off? Yeah, so uh, I'm in a slightly different situation that I read um, pretty much everything as soon as it came out. So uh, the interesting thing about Hugh Howey is that he made, he was one of the first writers to make it from fan fiction into sort of mass uh, publishing. And I didn't catch him when he was writing fan fiction, but I caught him very early after he moved into um, uh, a major publishing house, uh, and I read Wool because I, I grew up in in in, um, in sheep country in the north of England, and so I was like, "Oh, this has got sheep, and it's got <laughs> science fiction." Two of my favorite things, as it turns out, very few sheep in the in the uh, in the first book. Very um, few sheep. <laughs> but um, anyway, so this was, I said it was a long time ago that I read it, and so I have impressions, and as you do, you you have memories of how these types of things work and what I remember about it as being a, a very slow build and a very um, sort of profound and slightly oppressive world building project uh, and so when the first um, know, first couple of episodes really of the adaptation came out I was surprised that I mortified is too strong but I was a little bit disappointed at how dramatic it was um, and in, in the third and fourth episodes, I'm trying to <laughs> reel back my expectations and to think about, well, what does, what does an actual adaptation have to do? And a TV adaptation where you have to present, uh, you know, a full screen of what you see rather than um, uh, when you're building a world uh, in a book and you have to reveal things a word at a time. Um, and so, you, you know, you're... Um, your obligations as a director of a TV adaptation are to present everything at a time and then to explain things. Whereas uh, Howie, I felt, did actually a great job of explaining stuff and having this interior monologue. You know, you have all these characters that, that are, um, are there in the books and, of course, in the adaptation, but you everything's external. Everything you see is from the outside in the TV show. Whereas in the books, you have this 
I think a really deep sense and a really good sense of how the characters are feeling and approaching things. Um, yeah, there seems to be, you know, a lot of deep exposition in the book and maybe a little less dialogue. When, of course, in a television show, you know, you're going to have to rely primarily on dialogue, but, uh, you know, but also visual media to convey all of the, you know, that internal stuff that we're, you know, that's being described to us on the page. Yeah. So just to give our listeners a sense of what's going on and not to spoil too much of the narrative. So basically uh, we're in this mysterious silo and it's about uh, the history of which we have about 140 years uh, prior to that. No one really knows in the silo what happened, like who built the silo, what happened to the world. They just have 140 years of recorded history. Uh, and so going on that, we have, uh, you know, the series starts with a sheriff and, you know, he's doing some investigating and he's having some difficulties with his wife who's presented with some unique information that makes her think that everything is not as it seems. And it causes, causes her to declare that she wants to go outside. So they have to immediately have to, excuse me. So they have to arrest her and send her, you know, outside of the silo to clean the sensors so that if people can see out of the, the windows uh, or at least, you know, the cameras that are serving as windows. Uh, and of course that's a death sentence and her death kind of triggers the entire narrative of what happens. And there are more deaths piled on, you know, on that. And, you know, we have a new character who is, becomes the protagonist. Her name is Juliet and she's a mechanic from down deep in the bowels of the silo. And she becomes at one point the new sheriff and she decides to, you know, finish the work that the sheriff's wife uh, played brilliantly. I think by Rashida Jones started to uncover some of these mysteries and the deaths pile up, the mysteries pile up and uh, you know, such, such begins all of the narrative tension. Yeah. No. And I, th I think, I mean, some of the, Things that that Howie did really, I think, brilliantly in the exposition uh, of the book are beginning to get explored as we move through the um, the TV series, uh, and uh, and one of those things is just the challenge of living in in an enclosed society for 140 years, um, and you know what that means in terms of. Um, <clears throat> having uh, a generator so one of the things one of the things that kind of qualifies Juliet in our mind uh, and I think probably in the mind of some of the uh, people in in the novel as well is that she fixes stuff and, and specifically she fixes the this massive generator um, that's that lives in the in the, right at the base of the silo um, but of course once you get to uh, and then there's, there's great class systems that have built up because you you have to walk these uh spiral steps down from the top to the bottom so the people who are at the top is the mayor and the people who run it and the people at the bottom are the um uh, are the mechanics you know the mechanics. right we have you know we have the morlocks and the eloy you know going exactly, back to hg wells exactly. you know we have we have i mean it's literally the you know the upper class is literally on the upper floors and it's you know not the first time we've seen this kind of parable retelling of, of societal structures and difficulties. Uh, but one thing I think they did really well is present the, the scope of how big this silo is. Like in the books, like they describe the silo as hundreds of stories. And like, if you want to visit another part of the silo, like another part of the society, like it'll take you days to like travel down or up to where those people are. And I think visually the show does a really great job of 
conveying that sense of scale. Yeah, well, but it does. I think that the sense of scale is good. And but one of the things that the book can do and did with uh, with the time that it has is uh, so it, one of the things that happens is this is a, this is a spoiler, but only a little spoiler. The the sheriff dies, um, and uh, and so as you pointed out, Juliet is um, uh, appointed as the new one, and the mayor travels from the top you know, because she's a top person down, right down to the bottom where Juliet lives in the basement as a, as a bottom person. Where, and, and although you see the uh, deputy sheriff and the mayor trekking down and th- there are visual clues that this is uh, a trek, the days that it took them to get from the top to the bottom are telescoped into like a very few short seconds and you're not really given a sense that this is an uh, a grueling hike for especially for right. these two people who are slightly older um and you know it, it's given you know it's it's name checked but like in the in the novel as i remember and maybe i haven't gone back but you know, it was 10 years or so um but I, as i remember that this was actually a proper like two day three day hike and you're you know they camp each night you know it's not it's right not, right yeah and 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 I think that that allows you to get a sense of who this deputy uh, sheriff is because he he's a, a, a key character as well, and 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 who the mayor is in their relationship because that you know that that's an important relationship at the beginning of this. Um, it's a saga as well, and you know if, if all goes well with um with with Silo the series, you know that there could be a number of different um, episodes on this one. Oh, yeah. I mean, there could be, you know, seasons upon seasons, given, you know, all of the material just in the first book. Like, there's so much that happens. And I don't want to give anything away, but, you know, everything everything does not go particularly well in the silo and uh, the tension ratchets up. Uh, one thing I did want to talk about is I think the cast is fantastic. Uh, I think Rebecca Ferguson is a brilliant casting call for Juliet. And I think she plays the part really, really well. And Tim Robbins as the head of IT. Uh, the possibly evil, maybe, head of IT. Uh, he does a, a good job as as a possible antagonist. And we have some really great performances by Rashida Jones and David Oyelowo. Uh, and I just think the the acting and the directing of the actors, I think, uh, is really successful here. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. And, you know, um, I was just going to ask, did, aren't heads of IT always evil? Isn't that like a, <laughs> ex officio? <laughs> In my experience, they're usually just annoyed before they have to turn your computer off and then on again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's, I think it's, you know, the, I think it's um, a, a really um, adept show. Uh, the question is, what does it really add at this point? You know, is it, I mean, I guess, like, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's not interesting even. Yeah, I mean, we have very similar narratives. There are things like, you know, the movie, it reminded me a lot of like Snowpiercer, the way the, you know, fragmented society and, you know, the people on the bottom want to rise up against the people on the top and all of that. Um, and it's it's clearly not the first time we've heard this sort of narrative. But at the same time, if you do what Howie does in the books, uh, you develop characters that we really care about and a lot of times that's what we're going to hang on. And I think they do a good job of that. And uh, I'm really eager to now that I've you know, almost completed the first book, I'll be obviously done with the first book by the time they finish the first season. But you know, I'm really eager to see how they're going to treat the material going forward when the set pieces can get even bigger and more dramatic. 
Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I, as I said, that moving on through um, uh, episodes three and four, that the as the characters were being built out and you see more of Julia and they're able to actually um, spend longer cumulatively on the actual nature of the society, you get a deeper sense of what it is to live in this silo with this kind of steampunk aesthetic and then a lack of a number of different things that we think of as being necessary for society, but also you know, a, a number of peculiar um, uh, idiosyncrasies of this um, extremely vertical um, society uh, and class uh, class divided society and and of course we'll the uh, we haven't really mentioned the uh the leather coated judicial system that exists as this that's right um, separate uh, <laughs> that's right we have we have entity. common uh forgot to mention we have common playing playing the uh the heavy on the security team in a pristine leather jacket which is somehow available yeah, it survived after. survived for 140 years without a crease <laughs> <laughs> and that is one thing you know they, they get a lot right i think in the show but one thing that really kind of pulled me out uh, of 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 the in you know the on screen world building was some of the wardrobe I thought was a little too pristine to have come from a silo that's been so insular for 140 years or more. Yeah, yeah, I know it, uh, it's it's possible, but I thought they they scuffed pretty much everything else up, and they've got some nice uh, distressed walls. So uh, I didn't, yeah, I you know, the, the uh, uh, they're shaving. Uh, <laughs> their shaving technology seems to be there on fleek. So, uh, I'll, oh, yeah, they're, they're keeping up. really good care of their razors. But, <laughs> you know, it's those sort of things. It's a small quibble, but still, you have to mention it. I think, on a whole, I think the set design is great. I love the old, you know, co- they're still using computers and email, but, you know, they're kind of old Apple II ish looking terminals. Um, uh, but I just, uh, I, th- I think the world building, I think it's really successful on screen. I really get a sense of it. I think it's very evocative of the books. And uh, on a whole, I'm really digging the show and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with it next. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's definitely, it's progressing nicely and I've got confidence in the uh, show runners to, uh, to carry on and, and, and really provide us with the world that Howie gave us, which, was, which is kind of... Um, Amazing, and you know, and, and by the, and, and if they get us to the end of the saga, there's uh, there's some good payoffs to building this world. Well, well, I will very much look forward to it. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dan Friedman. Always love your stuff on the site. Thanks so much, Scott. Like yours too. Thank you. Well, that about wraps it up for the podcast this week, my friends. America's greatest living writer, Neil Pollock, will return to host next week if I let him. Just kidding. It's been a real pleasure taking the helm for a spell. I want to thank John Paul Gwynn for being here to discuss his deep expertise of the Fast and Furious franchise. Franchise? Franchise. His review of Fast X is up on the site right now, and the film is currently in theaters if you want some big, loud, movie-going fun. Thanks also to Daniel Cohen for chatting with me about Jeopardy! Masters, which you will find airing on ABC and various streaming services such as Hulu. And finally, a big British tip of the cap to Dan Friedman, for his lively and enlightening discussion of the Silo series, streaming now on Apple TV+. Thanks for checking into the podcast for Book and Film Globe. That's www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Our fearless leader, Neil Pollock, will return with more adventures in pop culture next week. In the meantime, I've been your guest host, Scott Gold, saying, May the force be with you, live long and prosper, be excellent to each other, so say we all, and may the odds be ever in your favor. Take care, folks.
Original Production.